Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. It is Thursday. If you can't keep track at home, it's Thursday, May 7th. Welcome. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Can we just, I, I, I got others and I want to, I'll circle back to this, but this thought just hit me out of the gate. Can, can we, can, can, <laughs> Can we stop seeing lectures by people against evangelicals who decided to support President Trump, uh, given that um, <laughs> given that we're seeing uh, Me Too movement feminists say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go with Joe Biden. I believe he's credibly accused by Tara Reid, but I'm going to go with him because we got to stop Trump. Uh, it, it's amazing how they, they now, they want to continue lecturing evangelicals for siding with Donald Trump, uh, while they themselves want to go for a man who's credibly accused of doing what Donald Trump bragged about in the video, grabbing a woman there. Uh, the hypocrisy knows no bounds. But then on the left, you, you can't really be hypocritical because you're mostly morally relative. And, and so what's good for you may be bad for someone else. There isn't some some sort of standard there. So, of course, hypocrisy only plays out on the right. Nonetheless, we'll, we'll get there. There's news there. Man, this New York Times op-ed. But I, I want to begin with this story down in Brunswick. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery uh, being killed. Have you? I don't even want to watch the video. I read what happened in the video. This is not a good situation. In fact, I, I will tell you, I got an email from a listener from Brunswick. He doesn't live down in Brunswick now. But he's from Southeast Georgia. And he is, um, his name is Greg McMichael. The shooter in the Arbery case is also, uh, is Gregory McMichael. And Greg McMichael and his family are getting death threats and harassment uh, because he shares the same name as the older gentleman who gunned down uh, Ahmad Ar Arbery. I, I've got to, I want to be careful how I tread here because we do need the disclaimer up front. Uh, we have seen situations in the past where uh, YouTube video, camera video, video, has shown us something that looked outrageous and it turned out later not to be. And so you need to have that up front. Uh, this is the outrage comes based on what happened and also on a YouTube video that corroborates what happened. And we have seen situations in the, like this in the past. And, and so I want to say that up front to say, I have not watched, I don't, I don't like to watch these sorts of videos. I don't want that stuff in my head. But I have talked to plenty of people who saw the video who I respect, including people in law enforcement, and there's just no other way to explain this than what would back in the day be referred to as a lynching. Horrific, horrific stuff. A young black man is jogging down the road, and two men chase him, are yelling at him, begin to shoot at him, there is a scuffle and they kill him. The older gentleman uh, is has been in law enforcement and is an investigator now for the district attorney. 
The district attorneys recused herself. Another district attorney has recused recused themselves. Someone else recused themselves after staking out the position that uh, this was a citizen's arrest and and a lawful use of a a citizen's arrest power, uh, which is a nonsensical uh, situation here. You, You undermine citizen's arrest statutes by saying, in this case, uh, with this video, I'm going to have to watch it, aren't I? Um, you, you undermine that situation by using citizen's arrest. Now, for those of you, let me give you the backstory here. There were a series of break-ins in Brunswick, Georgia. An older man and his son saw uh, Ahmad Arbery, and I, I apologize if I'm mis- mispronouncing his name, Ahmad Arbery, jogging down the road. The father believed that Arbery was someone he had seen the night before who had his hand down his pants as if he had a gun. They concluded that he was probably the person responsible for the break-ins and wanted to ask him questions, and they began to pursue him as he was jogging. He had a regular routine of jogging, of, of running. He was not running from anything. He was running as exercise. And the man and his son stopped, tried to stop Arbery. They were armed. They wanted to make a citizen's arrest. Uh, They wound up shooting and killing Arbery in a scuffle. You can see in the video Arbery uh, punching, uh, trying to defend himself. Uh, There's a shot, another shot. He ultimately, he's wearing a white t-shirt. You can see in the video, the shirt begins to be covered in blood as he falls back and dies inexcusable taking justice like that in your own hands believing yourself empowered to do that and they didn't arrest the guy one member of of, uh, one prosecutor defended it as uh, as the use of of a um, of a citizen's arrest Now this young man is dead, and his family wants justice. If you've ever read the book Praying for Sheetrock, you know about the the racial problems down in southeast Georgia, uh, McIntosh County, Glenn County, and the like. Um, There there is a history down there. I had to read that book. I want to say I read that book in high school and then had to read it again in college. Uh, It's it's actually a very good book, Praying for Sheetrock. But... Let, let's not deny that there is still racial injustice in the world. Uh, you know, I'll, I use this anecdote so much, but, you know, Roland Martin, who was at CNN with me for a while, I, I remember, you know, so I, I grew up in the Middle East. We didn't have race relation issues in the Middle East. There were... One black family in the school with us. Most of the, the kids were, were American or European, Canadian, lots of Canadians, uh, Pakistani and Indian. There was one black family. Ultimately, I think there wound up being two black families. And we race was something that it didn't really come up. I knew it in the abstract. Having uh, been born in Louisiana, I, I remember distinctly. When I was probably six years old, we had flown from Amsterdam to Houston on our way back to Louisiana. 
And I, I distinctly remember my sisters and me pointing out that there was a black person in the airport. We hadn't seen one in, in uh, we hadn't seen a black person in, in over a year. And so I'm mindful with myself that, that I'm, there's a, I, I have to work on this. It, it's an abstract issue for me having grown up in the Middle East. Uh, then to rural Louisiana, I, I graduated from high school uh, where I was in a class that was majority black, but it, it just, it, it, by then it really wasn't an issue. And coming to Macon, going to school uh, at Mercer, it just, it wasn't, Mercer was of course one of the, the first private schools in the South to integrate. Uh, proudly so. So, but I, I'm more and more mindful that there are a lot of friends of mine who don't recognize that there are still problems. Not everyone is racist. And I sometimes think the left tries to weaponize these. Like, I, I think it's very unhelpful on the left uh, to pursue these claims that somehow Republicans are systematically trying to deny people the right to vote uh, when there's really no evidence of voter suppression any more than there is a rampant voter fraud in the country. And both sides try to believe it. And it turns into racial issues inevitably, and it undermines the whole thing. But there are still racial issues in this country. There, there are still, uh, if you're white in this country, the odds of you getting pulled over by police on the interstate is actually less than if you're black. Driving the same car in the same way. That's just a fact. Uh, and, and there's no reason to dispute it, but a lot of people do. They get very defensive of it. Uh, I, it's, it's not to say police are racist or anything like that. It, it is just a, a situation in this country that we have to deal with. I have a friend of mine who, when we go anywhere, uh, he prefers me to drive uh, because he says the odds are we're going to get pulled over if he drives. And we get so tribal on these issues that we oftentimes don't recognize it. So this gets me to Roland. I I remember where it really hit me uh, as a CNN contributor in 2012. Roland and I were in South Carolina for the Republican debate. We were staying at the Big Marriott in downtown Columbia. Uh, We had actually, we'd gone to Charleston for the debate. We drove up to Columbia for another event. Uh, We were in the same hotel with Mitt Romney and his family. And Roland and I were doing a live broadcast at a bar in Columbia. He didn't drink. I did. <laughs> and uh, he was he was driving, and we were waiting for the car to be pulled up, and uh, these tourists came up. We were both in suits, and they started handing Roland their luggage. Now, they were Asian tourists. Uh, they, they weren't American, but it just it struck me as, wow. And there have been incidents like this along the way. I, I distinctly remember being in New York City, standing outside the Hotel Monaco, Uh, near Chinatown in Washington, D.C., and there was a man out there by me who was trying to hail a cab who was black, and they wouldn't stop for him. And I raised my hand, and they stopped for me, and I gave him my cab, and and the cab driver protested. Uh, And so I've had these little moments in life where I've seen these sorts of things happen. And there are things I try to be mindful of. Like, for example, the the Michigan protesters, the lockdown movement, many of them carry in firearms, uh, rifles. If that was a Black Lives Matter protest uh, in the Michigan Capitol where they were armed, I, I do think a lot of the people who were uh, who, who were commending the protesters for showing up with arms probably wouldn't view it the same way and they would nuance and try to distinguish and say it was the thing, but everybody's got the right to keep and bear arms. And so I, I see this case down in Southeast Georgia and, and frankly, I'm a little bit encouraged by the number of people on the right who are as outraged by it as people on the left. 
And I got a real concern and fear that people are going to try to capitalize on that and politicize it. And I hope it doesn't get that way. There is, of course, this concern of the rush to judgment. We don't want a rush to judgment, but there still there needs to be a judgment. Justice does need to be done. And this is a tragic situation. It is nice, though, to see the uniform outrage and outrage over a lack of charges, outrage over a lack of arrest, uh, outrage that the district attorney feels this needs to go to a grand jury as opposed to being something that the, the, the district attorney himself could, could oversee an arrest and press charges. But at least the process is working. We can see the flaws in the process and it's working. We should be outraged over these sorts of things. You know, one of the, the, I had this fantastic class on the prophets in seminary. Um, and the, the professor's just, he was fantastic. And we spent a good bit of time on Amos, which is really, it's become one of my favorite books in scripture. Man, there's so much in there. And a lot of conservative evangelicals, they try to avoid Amos these days because so many of the social gospel left-wing people who don't really believe the Bible but like to, to selectively uh, pick from it for their causes, um, that there's so much in there. And, and, and conservative evangelicals, they see the social justice people trying to cite Amos and they kind of avoid it, but, but justice is a real thing. And justice is something that, that all of us should pursue. Justice is not partisan. Justice is blind. Justice is, is about delivering uh, that which is due for penalty under law. You know, I, I actually take comfort in the doctrine of hell because there will be people who escape justice in this lifetime who I know won't escape justice in the next lifetime. And it's it's not up for us to worry about it, but it is up to all of us, I think, to have an obligation to seek justice. And there's a young man who is dead down in Brunswick, Georgia, whose family is seeking justice. And had there not been the outrage and had there not been the YouTube video and had there not been national exposure, they might never have gotten justice. And so I would tread carefully on saying people are thus far politicizing, and I have a fear that people will. But I think we also do need to recognize that had the exposure not happened to begin with, there might be no justice in this case. And maybe there are, there maybe there is more. And if so, then we have an obligation to get that as well to to avoid the shooter and his son being unfairly besmirched and smeared. It doesn't look like there will be. It looks like it is what it is, and, and justice is demanded of this. And I'm sure the media will sweep in, and the media will make it all all just even more seedy than it needs to be. But I would still keep my eye on the fact that justice needs to be done in situations like this. And it's unfortunate that so many of these cases require media exposure and YouTube videos and national outrage to get justice done. Uh, we should all be in search of justice. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. You know, you're, you're going to need to do this. You're going to need to engage. Uh, the um, You need to text ARMY to 33777 because there are a number of things here in Georgia and nationally that conservative activists are going to have to rally for. I, I, I'll get to one later in the day here in Georgia. Man, the speaker 
what the shenanigans that he's up to. I, I it just uh, first of all, I want to say I got a haircut. If you're watching on on the the live stream, yes, I finally hallelujah got my. I was about to have a mullet. Um, it, this is just it's it's awful. The quarantine hair is we got quarantine sourdough and not enough people writing about quarantine hair. I was my wife got clippers and, and scissors to cut our son's hair and I was really going to just scalp myself. And she informed me that when she was little where she lived, that's what all the, the kids did. All the boys who had lice, uh, that's what their parents did. And so please don't. That's <laughs> all. It and I just let it grow and it's been driving me crazy. So I, I was in Atlanta yesterday and I, I never get, I had to get special permission to, to go to the office uh, so that I go up. I, I needed to be in Atlanta anyway uh, for something else and decided I would get my haircut scheduled. And I went in, uh, Corey, my barber does a good job. I hadn't seen him in, in two months. I've actually been sending money to the barber shop just to help them out. There are several young guys in there who didn't have a big clientele base and I wanted to help them. And went in and uh, he was in a mask. Everybody was in a mask. You had to wait outside. And it got cold and started to rain. Who knew we were going to have winter come back? I mean, we've had like four winters in Georgia. But I got my hair cut and that was fantastic. And and then I, I went and was able to see my buddy Chris Burns uh, and... Hopefully, I'll be able to have him guest host soon so I can take a day off. Um, but nonetheless, um, I did get my hair cut. A, a little bit more here on, on this justice issue. It's sad to see so many of these things get weaponized by both sides in this country right now. Uh, we've gotten really so tribal in this country. And I have more and more friends who wonder, can we actually as a nation, stay united. And what I would really like to say is that we don't have to be except on the core things, and maybe we can't be on the core things. But I'm a big proponent of federalism, and I really do believe that federalism is the cure to what ails us. That uh, if California, I say all the time, it gets me in trouble for saying it, but I'm going to say it again and people get mad at me again. If California wants to have gay marriage and abortion and Georgia does not, uh, Georgia will eventually breed California out of existence uh, just in population growth, but we should allow them to do that. If Vermont wants to have Bernie Sanders style socialist medicine and Texas doesn't, Vermont should be able to as long as Vermont can do it within its means. One of the downsides of this, this, uh, con- uh, this conversation about bailing states out right now is that many of the states that want to be bailed out are states that want to be bailed out for bad decisions they made, not for the burdens of coronavirus. And they're very much behaving like Republicans in the early 2000s. If you'll remember after 9-11, the Republicans controlled Congress and the White House, and they went on a massive spending binge. And they said, well, it's horse spending, it's horse spending. If you don't support this spending, you're a traitor to the country. There were Republicans who made that argument. And it wasn't it, all the war spending was budgeted for. We had the money for the war spending, but we didn't have the money for all the domestic spending they wanted to engage in with No Child Left Behind and Medicare Part D and, and the like. And uh, by the way, notice Bush never gets credit for all that stuff anyway. Wanted to be liked by everyone, wanted to build unity, let Ted Kennedy write No Child Left Behind. And did he get, no, he didn't get credit. He, he was he's, he's still reviled by some, except in contrast to Trump. There was no limit to the spending and they hid behind the war and right now what's happening is there's no limit to the spending and they're hiding behind the virus and a lot of the spending is necessary when you shutter someone's business they're entitled to fair compensation and that's what ppp is about that's what the low interest loans are about that's what the bailouts are about i don't like it 
But these people didn't close on their own. The government made them close. But then you've got states like New York and Illinois that made all sorts of bad uh, decisions when it came to pensions and other things within their state, and they want to bail out for that as well. And, and Congress should toe the line on that. They shouldn't give them that. And I think Congress is going to cave overall on the issue, and that's really unfortunate. These issues shouldn't be partisan. Oh, it's just just sad. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. I, speaking of recipes, yeah, I know I need to get back to them. I'm sorry. I, I get emails now on a daily basis. Where are the recipes? I, I've been busy. It's amazing how quarantine has made me so busy because you know what it is? I, I've decided this is my theory. Everybody else has been in the office except me. I work from home. My, my studio is at home. And now everybody is working from home. And in the office, you know, you, you, you get slack in the office. People come by. The, I do this when I go to Atlanta. I, I, I never get to see my boss. And I like my, I have just, I, I had a fantastic boss who I dearly love, uh, who just retired and his replacement is, is just as great. And I love just hanging out with the guy and talking. And so I go by and there'll be somebody in his office and I'll go in and, and I'll chat with him. And, and so I, I go to the office and I'm not super productive in the office. It, it's more connection time. It's FaceTime. It's, it's enjoying being with people who I rarely get to actually see all the time. And when I'm home, I'm working. Uh, I'm, I'm steady work. Five hours of radio a day. I've got four hours in between to eat, go to the gym, uh, and right now do all the stuff I, I need to do because my wife can't leave the house and the kids are too young to drive, so I'm doing all that. I'm busy. And what I've decided is that people who are in the office and, and they hang out in the office and they visit in the office, they're home now and they got nobody to chat with. Gonna, well, Erickson works from home. He must be as unproductive as the rest of us. And they all call and text I mean, yesterday, somebody who was I uh, texting with yesterday, one of the a member of the state legislature here in Georgia, and he was texting me about something. I'd come up in a conversation. I had the text from him when I woke up and somebody uh, at his church wanted, knew that we know each other and asked for my cell phone and he wasn't going to give it to the person. Just thought it was funny that the, the boldness of that person asking for uh, my cell phone. <laughs> and he said, it must be hard being you sometimes. I kid you not, I woke up yesterday, I wake up typically between 6 and 6.30 to, to start to show prep for the show, and I had all, I think it was 20, 19, 20 text messages from people. Uh, most of them were all people on the West Coast, or one of them was in Hawaii and could just completely oblivious to the time zone, uh, but most of them were on the West Coast, and they were texting me about stuff overnight between like midnight and 3 a.m. I had these texts come in from different people over some stuff that had happened uh, relating to a, a friend, and I just... I, Ah, too many people have my cell phone and they're all friends of mine. And that's the problem is that if I change my cell phone number, they would also get the new cell phone. <laughs> so it's to get the text overnight. I've got a, 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 a prominent um, friend suggested that I just get a new cell phone. So I keep my current number and I keep my current cell phone and I just add a new one to the plan. And I look at the old cell phone or my current number, so to speak. I look at what my current number is maybe once a day and respond to people who have texted uh, and otherwise don't give out that number. And I'm thinking I probably need to be in that situation where I do something like that because, man, the number of people who have my cell phone is starting to get a little crazy. And it's the people who give it to the people who I don't know who's given out my cell phone number, but I'm, I'm sure none of you wanted to hear this, uh, but here I am doing it. I got other stuff to talk about, including meat.
That's right. We need to talk about the meat. Uh, where's the beef? Uh, it is not at your local grocery store or Wendy's. As you know, a number of Wendy's, is, are, they're having beef shortages having to do with their supply chain, and we're running out of meat in different places. Now, where did I put this? Did I put it in my Slack account? Uh, the Kroger CEO was on CNBC, and man, the CNBC did such a terrible job of relating this story to people. The Kroger CEO, here's the headline. Customers will have meat during the coronavirus pandemic so long as they are flexible. That's what the Kroger CEO said in his interview with CNBC. And nothing he said, mind you, was was wrong on this. Um, he, oh, stop. Oh, why are you loading an ad? Um, nothing that, that the Kroger CEO said was wrong. But it was portrayed as, here's here's his more precise quote, customers may not find the meat they want, but will find something to buy if they're flexible on eating between chicken, pork, and beef. And the way this was blown out, let's see, here here is the the CEO. Let me see if I can route the audio here. I'm doing this on the fly because I forgot that I had the audio. You, with the White House, you were involved in this joint effort with some of your competitors to try to bring more testing to this country, which is so desperately needed to reopen the economy. Where are you on this? How, how are you providing more tests? Uh, we continue to ramp it up. Uh, at the White House event, we were in six states testing. We're ramping it up to 12 uh, states where we're testing. And one other thing that we announced uh, this week is uh, associates that are eligible going through the CDC uh, guidelines uh, on our own employees, uh, we provide testing as well. And we think it's part of uh, something really important. And obviously, when somebody is uh, a COVID-19 positive, you want them to quarantine. But just for the broader population, are, are you opening these testing sites at Kroger stores across the country? Uh, we so typically we typically work. Uh, we, we have a we partnership with Microsoft in creating a bot that uses the CDC guidelines in terms of whether you're eligible for the test or not. Uh, the tests are free, and we partner with local state governments and author, uh, local, local and state both in terms of the drive-through facilities. And what we're typically doing is being able to use school space or uh, fairgrounds uh, space that's conducive for easy drive-through. That's remarkable. I, I don't want to play the, the entire six minutes of this, but it, it's remarkable what Kroger is stepping up and doing. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a diehard Publix fan. <laughs> somebody, somebody who listens to this program who is not in a state where Publix is actually uh, emailed me last week. They had to go check on their elderly relatives uh, in South Carolina. And there was a Publix and they had to go to the Publix to get the groceries for their elderly parents who have been isolated. And they said, man, I see why you like your Publix. But I, I got tremendous respect for, for Kroger. Uh, so Rodney McMullen, he's expanding testing. Kroger is going to handle COVID-19 testing in select parts of the country where they exist, which is fantastic. But they go on in this interview. And I, I thought I had that that clip pulled up, but I didn't. But he says, let me read you the quote. If you're flexible on eating between chicken, pork, and beef, we constantly have one of those items or two of those and usually three. 
We're working with all of our meat suppliers, figuring out how to get products that were diverted to restaurants before uh, to get diverted to our stores. We're working with new suppliers. And it's one of those things where on a daily basis, our teams are working 24-7, finding products and getting it in there for our, our customers. They're working also with local farms. So uh, we've got a number of four farms here in Middle Georgia, like Rocking Chair Ranch and others, uh, the grass-fed beef and stuff, that have uh, they've supplied local restaurants and all. You can get boxes from them as all Kroger's reaching out to these local farms around and they're trying to source beef from them many of them have people who butcher on site at the farms as opposed to going to the big warehouses and Kroger's trying to do this so here's the problem though this, this is why I've, I find this whole thing so funny it is so Kroger this Kroger CEO is on CNBC and he says this stuff uh one of the things where we're working with new suppliers that's what he, he didn't say new farms. That's what he meant. And if you saw the full conversation, you would know that's what he meant. They're going out and, and they're working with small farmers who have farms. <laughs> and this turned into a thing. Oh, my God. They're, they're going to serve us fake meat. Our, our beef could be horse. <laughs> the peak sludge is coming back. People were freaked out by this. Because they saw it on social media and they didn't click through. This is this is probably one of the, the, the worst things to happen in the 21st century now is that people read the headline and they don't actually read the story. It, it's so easy now on social media where you get the excerpt on social media and no one actually clicks through to see what, what's there or not. And the, the whole thing um, just got blown out of proportion. And all Kroger's doing is being responsible for their customers. But the main point is, is if you're flexible on eating, and that's how CNBC headlined this. Uh, so long as this is the headline again, Kroger CEO customers will have meat during the coronavirus pandemic. So long as they are flexible. <laughs> yeah, some people bend over quite a bit. To, to <laughs> there are jokes that write themselves that are inappropriate for my mind or radio. Shame on me. I repent. Uh, <laughs> um, but. I'm not going to say that. Oh, man, I'm about to get myself in trouble. Okay, I got to move on. Um, so people heard this so long as they're flexible, and they thought that um, maybe they're going to introduce new meat products, the the Beyond Burger, the Impossible Burger, that that's going to become the standard, and this is our way of, of getting people to become vegetarian. No, no, what he meant is that when you go to the grocery store to go shopping, next week when my Rectech grill finally comes in and I go to the grocery store, I may not be able to find ground chuck, but I may be able to find a pork loin. I may be able to find a chicken if I can't find the pork. I may be able to find a brisket if I can't find the roast. They will have meat. They will have beef. They will have pork. They will have chicken. They will even have turkey. They just will not guarantee that they have exactly what you're going to go in there and look. I went the other day and I found lean ground beef. And I couldn't find ground truck. Now, lately, I've been finding uh, the market beef, which I don't get. It's, it's too it's got too much grit in it um, sometimes, and it's too fatty for me. Uh, we typically were a ground chuck, but my wife has gotten – she's been going to the gym. She's been eating better. She's been getting lean ground beef, and lean ground beef is too dry for hamburgers. But here's the thing. If you do a panade where you soak a piece of bread and in milk or you add an egg to it it gives you extra protein and fat and you can get a good juicy burger by doing that even if you can't find your ground truck you just got to be flexible with that stuff uh if you have to get the lean ground beef just add an egg to it seriously add an egg to it 
Um, and if you can't find beef, well, there will be chicken. If you can't find chicken, maybe there will be pork. But the, the idea that they're going to start introducing horse meat to the American diet or the, I mean, people went crazy about this, uh, about this conversation and they didn't actually bother to listen to the conversation. People are nuts. Okay. Let me give you the, the audit trail update real quick, uh, before I go any further, um, just so you know where we are in the state, uh, 31,150 total cases. I, I really do feel compelled to reiterate now on a daily basis that these are not the total current cases. Most Georgians have recovered from COVID-19. To beat a dead horse that's not going to wind up at your local grocery store, the reason you're not hearing about recoveries in most of the states, some of the states you are, but not here, it's because they're focused on getting people tested who may have the virus and to clear a person and report them as recovered, you got to give them a test and there's just not enough testing capacity. Now, where are we in the state right now? Um, we are uh, down to yesterday, 36 cases. I want to go though, let me go to May 1st because this is, I, I continue to be interested in May 1st. Um, May 1st is my metric for um I'm, I'm jotting a note here just so I have this. May 1st is my metric to try to educate you on how the data comes in. Believe it or not, uh, the state of Georgia is being attacked by some academic scientists for giving you too much information. And, you know, I myself have said that I have a little bit of concern that there's so much information out there that it allows people to nitpick it to death. And we're not necessarily getting accurate pictures. And the state of Georgia has defaulted to giving you more information than you potentially need. The May 1st number, I think, is is a good one to try to understand what the state is doing. On May 2nd, when I looked at May 1st, on, on when or actually on May 1st, when I looked at May 1st, there were only about a dozen cases. Uh, and then by May 2nd, there were about 30 cases. Um, on May 4th, at 9 a.m., it was 128. By the end of the day on May 4th, they were up to 158. The next morning, 179. By the end of the day, they were at 214. Yesterday morning, there were 430 cases for May 1st, and today there's 485 cases for May 1st. Uh, April 30th went up to 514. The 27th of April has gone up to 868. So you still got a good trend from April 27th you had 868 cases to May 1st, you have 485 cases, and it'll probably hold steady there now. And we'll start seeing the second at 189 and, and the third at 137 and, and the fourth at 296, they'll start going up. One of the things we also see is you can fairly well plot out what days the weekend are because you see these distinct drops, uh, these significant drops, and those are the weekend days. But what the state is doing is in real time, as they get the testing results in, they continue to update their website. Now, some of that is delayed because some of that is is uh, local entities doing the testing, uh, delaying sending the results. And, and that's why May 1st isn't fairly steady. It is uh, slowly but surely over time updating the results. And what you still see consistently is Georgia has flattened the curve and we're on the decline. There are academics who are upset with Georgia providing you all of this information because they think Georgia is either providing you false hope or they are allowing the conspiracy theorists to get the better of you. And that's not true. Consider the RT rate, the rate of transmission, R0 is actually what it is, 
R0, if it's above one, then the, the, the virus spreads. The higher above one it goes, the more it spreads exponentially. The, the lower or below one, the faster it clears out. Yesterday, Georgia had been at 0.81. Today, Georgia's at 0.78. The trend lines are all in the right direction. I got to tell you, in all honesty, the data is with the governor. And when we come back, I, I want to talk about my friend Bethany Mandel. She was a trending subject on Twitter because she said basically that she and her kids, they're going outside now. They're done. They're, they're done with the lockup. They're going outside. And literally, people were referring to her as grandma killer and granny killer. She was a trending subject on Twitter. Uh, that he, Soledad O'Brien came after her. You know Soledad O'Brien used to be on CNN. Um, came after her calling her granny killer and others out there attacking her for saying they're, they're going outside. They're tired of staying inside. She's a homeschool mom. Her husband works, and they're ready to go outside. And she's being vilified by the left for daring to say that as if she's going to kill grandma. And here's the thing. I've, I've concluded this. Much of the moral indignation over ending the lockups now, over allowing people to go back now that we flatten the curve, all the goalposts moving, there is some of it that is an element of if the economy rebounds, it could help the president. So we need to stay people, keep people home so the economy doesn't rebound. But I think that's the minority. I think the majority of the people who are still intent on keeping everyone at home, even though we flatten the curve, are people who are scared and they don't want to admit they're scared. And so they hide their fear behind moral indignation and outrage. I think that's what we're seeing right now. All right, I, I need to address this now. Let me just go on and hit this in the bud because I'm kind of shocked by the number of people who have uh, been sending me this video overnight of the the woman, uh, Judy, what's her name? The doctor, the AIDS researcher who is discrediting Anthony Fauci. I, I, I've had family members send me this. Have you seen it? Uh, I, I've had uh, readers and listeners send it to me. And have you seen it? Yes, unfortunately. I know this woman all too well. Uh, the woman who is being interviewed in this video was one of the leading AIDS researchers in America. And I, I don't know if she lost her mind or what, but uh, she was arrested for stealing research, was fired. Uh, they wound up not prosecuting her. She went underground and, and came resurfaced as one of the world's uh, authorities on anti-vaccine uh, stuff. Uh, she's a big anti-vaxxer. Uh, has spread all sorts of, it just done all sorts of damage to the way people think about vaccines. Um, she is not a credible source. She does not like Fauci because Fauci, of course, uh, has pushed back on, on the anti-vaccine stuff that she herself has pushed. And now I'm seeing people uh, peddle this theory that Anthony Fauci is going to get rich off the COVID-19 stuff. That's not true, and you need to understand this. Uh, the way patent law works in the United States, uh, institutions don't get patents. Patents are awarded to individuals. So, for example, when Steve Jobs was alive at Apple, you go look through the patent bureau, and you'll find tons and tons of patents that have Steve Jobs' name on them. Uh, ultimately, a lot of companies put individuals' names on patents as a way to retain those individuals. Those individuals... Uh, are given all sorts of, of applause and credit for being on the patent of some unique uh, device. Well, Anthony Fauci is on all sorts of patents because he is the head of the National Institutes of, of Allergy and Asthma or whatever the title is, and they've engaged in a series of health research studies over the years that have gotten patents awarded to the federal government. Well, the federal government and the NIH and the like, they can't take a patent. It's got to be under someone's name. 
And so he, being the head of the organization, it's under his name, but by law, he can't get, he can't profit off those patents. He is well compensated by the, he's one of the highest paid civil servants in the United States, in large part because the federal government knows they need to pay him well to keep him from going into the private sector because he's that good. And he cannot profit off the patents. It is misleading for people to say that. I'm actually shocked at how this stuff uh, uh, circulates. And by the number of friends of mine who know me and uh, who, who they're like, is this real? The woman is, you You need to research who this woman is. She is one of the most harmful people in, in the medical scientific community in America today for the way she has poisoned people's minds towards vaccines. And she really has a, a is nursing a grudge against those who have kind of exposed that the, the kookery out there. Um, I mean, she was arrested for stealing people's research or some such at, at her office before she was fired. She used to be a brilliant, I don't know what happened to her. I, I have no idea. But there's something not right there. The, you know, the moral of the story here is is the reason people are treating this credibly is because it had a cinematic quality to it. It looked credible. It didn't look like a fringy video. You know, the the aliens guy on the History Channel. If they if they filmed him with a cinematic quality, with a red camera and, and the color coding and all of that, he would be like the philosopher king of planet Earth with the aliens. It turns out the aliens seem to be real, according to the New York Times. But you you give somebody a cinematic quality and make it look credible, and suddenly people are willing to buy the fringe and the kooks as opposed to the typical nonsense. Good gracious. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, if you're in the Macon area, you need to listen to this. Uh, I, I am, because uh, I got a column in the local paper and people keep calling to complain. They don't even want to get on the air. They just want to yell because uh, I had a, a column in the paper this week. And I said, all I've said is exactly what I've said to you people that uh, as for me and my family, we're staying put because all the idiots are going to go out and get Darwin awards by, by doing what they shouldn't be doing out there. And I am thus far correct. Uh, the number of people who are out and about not doing what they need to do <clears throat> because they're convinced they're never going to get the virus anyway as I choke on my own saliva, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, we're staying put by and large. I went to the grocery store yesterday. Uh, it's actually kind of an interesting phenomenon. I had to go over to Publix yesterday. I went around lunchtime when I knew the crowd would actually be kind of light. And I was stunned by the number of people in masks. I, I, I was genuinely surprised by the number of people who were wearing masks because I went in on Friday afternoon and then on Saturday and no one was wearing a mask, so much so that... I made sure I was wearing one, and then yesterday everybody was back in a mask, which was good, which was good. But uh, my goodness gracious, a number of people. By the way, um, shout out to Governor Kemp's office. Thank you for moving your press conference from four o'clock to three thirty. So maybe I'll have an afternoon radio show after all. I I was fairly there, there's going to be a big press conference this afternoon as the governor updates people. You know what's fascinating is how the media just fawns over Andrew Cuomo. There's a story out now that uh, New York is reporting more than 1,200 additional deaths from nursing homes, and those deaths come because New York failed to take uh, preventative care to stop the virus from spreading in these nursing homes, and yet it's just absolutely insane that the media has this massive love affair with the um, with 
Andrew Cuomo, largely because he's up there. And remember, 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 when Donald Trump had his press conference a couple of weeks ago, one of the MSNBC anchors pointed out how many people died during that press conference. And everybody in the media thought it was fair. How many people die during the Andrew and Chris Cuomo show on CNN? Are, are we allowed to ask that? Are we allowed to? I, I don't I don't know that we're allowed to ask, um, but I think it's fair. Now, uh, speaking of fair, I, I got to say, uh, where, where's this? Yes, where's this? Uh, Caitlin McInerney, she is McInerney. She's the White House press secretary. I love that she did this. In a previous life, before you were press secretary, you worked for the campaign. And you made a comment, I believe, on Fox, in which you said President Trump will not allow the coronavirus to come to this country. Given what has happened since then, obviously, would you like to take that back? Well, first, let me note, I was asked a question um, on Fox Business about President's travel restrictions. I noted what was the intent behind those travel restrictions, which is we will not see the coronavirus come here. We will not see terrorism come here, referring to an earlier set of travel restrictions. I guess I would turn the question back on the media and ask similar questions. Does Vox want to take back that they proclaim that the coronavirus would not be a deadly pandemic? Does the Washington Post want to take back that they told Americans to get a grip, the flu is bigger than the coronavirus? Does the Washington Post likewise want to take back that our brains are causing us to exaggerate the threat of the coronavirus? Does the New York Times want to take back that fear of the virus may be spreading faster than the virus itself? Does NPR want to take back that the flu was a much bigger threat than the coronavirus? And finally, once again, the Washington Post, would they like to take back that the government should not respond aggressively to the coronavirus? I'll leave you with those questions and maybe you'll have some answers. And, if you <laughs> and she walked out on them and they started yelling questions at her. That was, that was brilliant. Uh, I, I could watch this show. And, and by the way, you, you know what, you know what? <laughs> I can't tell you how this was titled, but uh, here goes. We'll just play Don Lemon. Let me say it louder for the people in the back. It is not about popularity. It's about getting the facts from the experts. And let me say it for everyone who is listening, who is part of the president's apologists. People were criticizing these coronavirus task force meetings and saying that they shouldn't run live, not that he shouldn't do them at all, but that they shouldn't run live without fact checks. That was the criticism. That they shouldn't do them, they should do them. But the president shouldn't be allowed to just drone on and on and give misinformation in real time that we had to scramble back and then double check and then give fact checks when many, many millions of people would believe some of the stuff that he had said and it was wrong. That's what the criticism was. They leave out the word live when they say people had criticized the networks for running them live. Why can't... so? First of all, the, the, the presupposition here is that other presidents are honest and other White Houses are honest. Remember Barack Obama said you get to keep your doctor if you wanted to keep your doctor, and the media defended him, and it turns out that was a lie. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not like other presidents are honest. 
but they do want to hold Trump to a different standard. And Don is actually one of the people who complain repeatedly about airing these press conferences. And yes, airing them live. Uh, they would not air the full thing. Otherwise, they would selectively edit. Uh, and that was the point of airing them live. So the media can't selectively edit because Don Lemon himself and CNN uh, have a, a propensity to selectively edit things. And the outrage over this is nonsensical, and, and it's it's fantastic to have Caitlin McEnany in there, who's thus far proven herself to be a competent White House press secretary who's willing and able to do this stuff. Uh, because the, the outrage out there, the outrage factor of everything out there is dialed up a notch. Let me give you uh, an example of the outrage factor out there. Uh, Bethany Mandel is a friend of mine who went viral on Twitter yesterday for a tweet. Let me read you her tweet. Actually... There's a series of tweets. I want to read you all the series of tweets. It's the last one that really stirred people up. Remember when we were told we had to flatten the curve and we'd lock down for a few weeks to ramp up PPE and free up ventilators or else we'd have to start death panels? When did that turn into indefinite lockdowns and economic destruction because if it saves one life? This isn't about greed, it's survival. People can't buy food or pay rent or mortgages. Small businesses are closing. Dentists and doctors are going into the red. Schools are going to start closing. This is the destruction of society we're talking about. There will be no pediatricians or general doctors or physical therapists or nurses or home health aides, no dentists, no zoos, no aquariums, no private schools, no restaurants, no caterers, no hairdressers, no nail technicians, no gyms, no summer camps, no daycares. We never had ventilator shortages. My local pediatric ER converted to a COVID ward and now sits empty. What are we waiting on here? I genuinely like an answer. A vaccine? Because if that's it, our society will be absolutely wrecked in the meantime. You can call me a grandma killer. I'm not sacrificing my home, food on the table, all of our doctors and dentists, every form of pleasure like museums, zoos, and restaurants, all my kids' teachers in order to make other people comfortable. If you want to stay locked down, do. I'm not. Doesn't mean it won't be done responsibly, but I am just, I'm done. I feel lied to about the terms of this lockdown, and I regret ever trusting that it would be done responsibly. What's wrong with that? There, there's really nothing wrong with that statement. It's a reasonable statement. And, and you know, I, I've been getting blown up for two months by listeners of this program for saying we needed to shelter in place. I'm getting, we're getting hate calls this morning. I can see the phones light up and I finally asked Charlie, what's going on with the phones? Can people not get through? No, it's people calling to complain uh, about my column in the, in the local paper, the Macon Telegraph, that uh, I'm staying home because the idiots out there have decided to go out and about as if nothing ever happened. This is a reasonable position, y'all, that the goalposts have moved and, and Bethany's right to point it out and she is getting uh, eaten up on social media. Joe Lockhart, former White House press secretary to Bill Clinton, let me let me read you his tweet to her. You're a grandma killer, yes, but you're also a nurse killer, a doctor killer, a cop killer, a grocery clerk killer, a student killer, a five-year-old killer, a bus driver killer, a father killer who just had a child killer, a family killer. Good people take care of their community. My last point to you, as much as I despise the selfish sentiment and the type of people like you, I'm going to stay inside to potentially save you, your family, and friends, and to save what's left about what's great about this country. What the hell? I was told if we go, can we not go out at all? What, what about the governor of, of Colorado? He's letting people out. Is he wrong? Why is Bethany Mandel the bad guy when the governor of Colorado is letting people out and about? 
Other Democratic governors are starting to let people out and about. Why are they bad? Why isn't Andrew Cuomo bad when people are going to parks in New York City, many of them without face masks on? I saw the video yesterday. Why is she bad for pointing out that people's businesses and careers are going to be ended if we don't start finding out a way to get people out of their houses? And in the meantime, the left keeps moving the goalposts. I really do think there are a lot of people out there who are doing this because they don't want the economy to rebound. They're afraid it'll help Donald Trump. They saw the Reuters Ipsos poll that shows the president now ahead of Joe Biden on the issue of who can better handle the virus and who can better handle the economic recovery, and it has freaked them out. But there's a larger segment of the population that are just plain scared. They are scared, and they have every right to be, and it is understandable that they're scared. They are scared because there is a global pandemic of a virus. You cannot see it. Many people have it and don't even know they have it, and they give it to people who then react to it in ways that cause them to die. They are scared for themselves. They are scared for their parents or their grandparents. They are scared for their neighbor, understandably so. But they're hiding that fear behind moral outrage at others who aren't scared. They're hiding that fear as we know better for society and you're a bad person if you don't agree with us. There was a time where it was reasonable for everyone to shelter in place, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And I got a lot of friends who are going to fight for the next century claiming that there was no reason for us to do it. Here, here's, here's the funny thing now. I, I'm seeing people say, well, you, everybody's flattening the curve at about the same way, so clearly it wasn't the shutdown. No, everybody around the world is largely sheltered in place, so of course the, the curve is largely flattened at about the same rate. You know where the curve hasn't flattened? Sweden. But the... The moral outrage, I think, has a lot to do with people who are scared. And and listen, I, I, I don't blame her for being scared. My wife's in the high-risk category. I, I'm, I'm worried for her because of the idiots out there. And, and if you're going out and about, I'm not calling you an idiot. Don't hear that. I'm, I'm calling you an idiot if, if you're going out, you're, you're not wearing masks, and you're going out to large gatherings. Listen, if you go out and you're not wearing a mask, okay, just don't go into large groups of people. But, man, the, the video from, from Midtown Atlanta uh, for Cinco de Mayo, the large gatherings of, of 20 and 30-somethings, who they're at risk, too. You, you know, there are, are 22 people in Georgia who had no pre-existing conditions under the age of 60 who died, and more than half of them are under the age of 50. Now, you're, you're saying, okay, that, so what is that? That's 15 people? Yeah, it's 15 people with no pre-existing conditions who were under the age of 50 and they died from the virus. That's not a lot of people in the grand scheme of things. But you keep the virus spreading, the number goes up. There are people who think they're bulletproof because of their age, and they're not. More than a third of the people who get the virus have no pre-existing conditions, and a significant portion of them are under the age of 60. A, a very large proportion of them are under the age of 50, and they get the virus, and they're still bedridden for two weeks. And they spread it to other people who spread it to older people who call, who die. There's reason to be concerned. But have we forgotten how to be responsible? And, and that, I think, is Bethany's point. Have we forgotten to be responsible? She says she's going to go out and about. She's going to move. She's, she's going to take her family out, and they're going to be responsible about it. They'll wash their hands. They'll wear their masks. 
They'll be responsible when they go out. Is she not allowed? Why must she be a prisoner in her home when the curve is flattened? The curve is flattened. Everybody said, flatten the curve. We can go out. All she's doing is expecting our leaders to keep their word. And their word was, we got a shelter in place to flatten the curve. In Georgia, the curve is flattened. The governor said, it's time to time to go out. In Florida, the curve is flattened. It's time to go out. And the media is obsessed with beach pictures from Florida, uh, as opposed to in Michigan, where there's been a massive new spike in Michigan, despite all the draconian measures of the governor there. And people are obsessing about the Florida numbers when Florida doesn't have nearly as many cases as Michigan or, or New York or a lot of these other states. It is not a coincidence at this point that the media is, is highlighting uh, Republican governors in their states as the bad guys who are going to let the virus go rampant, even though they're less affected by the virus than a lot of these other states. And that's going to cause a partisan divide, and that's going to cause an ideological divide, and that's going to cause real divisions in the country because the media itself can't be responsible here. All this stay-at-home mom did, who homeschools her kids, is say, I'm worried about my doctor, I'm worried about my dentist, I'm worried about the zoos we take the kids to, I'm worried about the nail salon, I'm worried about the hairdresser, I don't want them to be permanently closed because we've moved the goalposts as society from flatten the curve to we can never go out again until there's a vaccine or a cure. We're ready to go out. We're going to go out and we're going to be responsible. And she's been lit on fire for doing what millions of Americans are already doing, all because she had the audacity to not only say it out live, but point out that government officials at her state and elsewhere have moved the goalposts without ever explaining why. I'm I'm sorry to not talk about COVID-19 for a moment. I'm sure you're all disappointed, but we need to discuss Earl Thomas. Actually, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to read the story for you. NFL star Earl Thomas is lucky to be alive after cops say his wife held a loaded gun less than a foot from his head after she allegedly caught him cheating with another woman. It all spelled out in court documents detailing a April 13th altercation between the Baltimore Ravens player, his wife, Nina Thomas, and several other people. The Austin Police Department responded to a home in the Austin, Texas area at 3.41 a.m. after getting a call about a disturbance. When cops arrived, they say, we observed that a black female wearing an orange sweater with a knife in her hand, later identified as Nina Thomas, was chasing a shirtless black male, later identified as Earl Thomas, with a pistol in his hand around a vehicle. Cops drew their weapons and ordered both Nina and Earl to the ground, and they complied without incident. That's when the investigation got a little crazy. According to Nina's story, according to the court documents, Nina Thomas claims Earl, age 30, left their home earlier in the day after an argument over the NFL player's drinking. She claims that Earl's brother, Seth Thomas, picked him up. But a short time later, she decided to check on his whereabouts by logging into his Snapchat account. That's where she found video of Earl with another woman. Nina says she used Earl's Snapchat account to track his location to a nearby Airbnb rental home and says she called up two other women to help her confront Earl at the pad. This already sounds like a country music song. <laughs> Nina claims she grabbed Earl's pistol, a nine millimeter Beretta in the process with the intention to scare him. When the women arrived at the home, they discovered Earl and his brother, Seth, naked 
in bed with multiple other women. That's when Nina admits she pulled out the gun and put it to Earl's head, stating that she took out the magazine thinking the gun could not fire, but cops say Nina was unaware the gun had a round in the chamber. Cops say one of the women in the house shot cell phone video of the incident, which they say shows Nina pointing the gun at Earl's head from less than a foot away, and it can clearly be seen that Nina's finger is on the trigger and the safety is disengaged. Fortunately for Earl, cops say the Ravens defensive back was able to wrestle the gun away from her. Cops say the cell phone video also shows Nina striking Earl in the nose before it ends. Cops also spoke with Earl, who essentially corroborated the story, adding that Nina repeatedly hit him while he attempted to take the firearm away. In an interview with Earl's alleged mistress at the scene, she claimed Nina also threatened her and the other woman in the house, pointing the gun at them and yelling, I got something for all you hoes. <laughs> Who among us has it? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We should pray for them. Uh, well, well. Uh, he let's see on Instagram now. Um, Earl Thomas says stuff like this happens, bro. We're trying to live the best life we possibly can, but sometimes it doesn't go as planned. Yep, that sounds like a Joel Osteen sermon right there. We're trying to get our best life now, but sometimes it doesn't go as planned. Who among us hasn't? Oh my goodness gracious! Uh, I I I got nothing. I just I felt like we needed a break from the virus and well. There you go, folks. Question. I have a question. Question. Do evangelicals still have to be lectured about supporting President Trump when the whole believe all women crowd has decided to go with the one who's actually accused of grabbing a woman there? Uh, I'm I'm it's 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 a relevant question, I think. It is a question that they have. They the the whole believe all women stuff is kind of out the window. Uh, where is this? The Washington Free Beacon. Da, 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 where did I put this link earlier? Oh come on, Washington Free. There we go. Uh, the the woman who helped write the Violence Against Women Act says she doesn't believe Tara Reid. The attorney who drafted the violence, this is is Elena Goodman at the Washington Free Beacon. The attorney who drafted the Violence Against Women Act with Joe Biden in the early 1990s says she doesn't believe Tara Reid's sexual assault allegations against the former vice president and questioned whether the Russian government or Bernie Sanders are behind the claims. Victoria Norse who also served as Biden's chief counsel in 2015, told the Free Beacon by email, Reed's allegations against Biden don't make sense based on her personal experience with the former vice president. She also pointed to Reed's changing story and said that Biden once saved her when Norris was sexually harassed by a public official in the 1990s. I never worked with Tara Reed, she says. I never heard of her. I don't think the allegations make sense at all to the Biden I know. Oh, the Biden she does. You know, people said the same thing about Brett Kavanaugh. These allegations don't make sense based on the Brett Kavanaugh I know. These allegations don't make sense based on the Brett Kavanaugh who I went to high school with. But it didn't matter then 
to her or any of the others. But suddenly it matters. It's like, you know, you interview the people who lived next door to the serial killer. He seemed, he kept to himself, but he was a very nice guy. Had lovely roses in the backyard. Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbors, they sure liked him. Pay no attention to the small boys in the in the freezer. Now, I'm not saying that's Biden, no, but you know what I mean. You interview the mass murderers, next door neighbors or their family. He was always so well-meaning. He always cut our grass for us. He always had such nice roses. He was such a lovely young man. Doesn't seem like him at all. That's not the serial killer we knew. That's not the senator we knew. Not the you know. The Republicans made Denny Hastert Speaker of the House in the the 2000s because he seemed like the safe bet after Newt Gingrich's collapse, and turns out he was a child molester, gone to jail for it. (laughs) Who knew? He seemed like such a nice Speaker of the House. The way he held that gavel, just no one would have expected it. (laughs) I mean, come on, people. All, all the people who say you evangelicals, you're just you're just sacrificing your values to support a a serial philanderer who grabbed his who's a, who he's on tape saying he would grab a woman there, and and now suddenly they're supporting Joe Biden who apparently did grab a woman there. I mean Trump just bragged about it. Biden apparently did it, or at least he's credibly accused of doing it. And they're like, oh, you evangelicals, you're such hypocrites. Uh, where where is this uh, New York Times story? Um, I failed to accurately, I can get into this New York Times website. The woman who wrote in the New York Times op-ed page that it turns out she actually believes, she believes Tara Reid. And she's voting for Joe Biden anyway. Did they bury this? Where is this? Yes, she she. She believes Tara Reid, and yet she has decided that she's going to go with Joe Biden anyway because it's better to stop Donald Trump. She actually wrote the book on sexual harassment. She literally wrote a book on sexual harassment, and this woman, yep, here it is, Linda Hirschman is the author most recently of Reckoning, the epic battle against sexual abuse and harassment. Y'all, hold on to your hats. I'm going to read this woman's op-ed. Let's be clear. I believe Tara Reid. I believe Danita Hill, too. Remember the buttons? I wore one. Now, what are these buttons she's talking about? I think I know what she's talking about, but, oh, yeah, I believe Anita Hill. It was even, so there was a show when I was a kid called Designing Women. It's actually a really good show, uh, but it was uh, Linda Bloodworth Thomas and someone else. They were, I think her husband, they wrote the show based in Georgia. You know the show, the Sugar Bakers and whatnot. Um, they, they were interior designers. And during the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas stuff, they all wore buttons that said, I believe Anita Hill. And they did a whole show about it. Well, this woman says she wore one. What's the constant here? Joe Biden, then the bumbling head of the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, now the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. Long before Ms. Reed, before the reports of the rubbing and the sniffing, I interviewed an advisor to Ms. Hill 
who said she tried to warn Mr. Biden of what was happening in the Thomas hearings, how unchecked Republicans were smearing an upright woman's character. But the United States Senate was still very much a boys club back then, the advisor told me, and there was no getting through to him. Democratic primary voters knew all about Mr. Biden's membership in the boys club when there was still time to pick someone else. Alas, so what's a girl to do now? Discounting Ms. Reed's accusation and, one after another, denigrating her corroborating witnesses calls for endless new evidence. Avowing that you hear her is nonsense. We are now up to four corroborating witnesses, including one contemporaneous corroborating witness unearthed by Rich McHugh, who was Ronan Farrow's producer at NBC News during the Harvey Weinstein Me Too reporting. And we've got one Larry King live tape of her mother. So stop playing gotcha with the female supporters of Mr. Biden or the Me Too movement, making them lie to the camera or perhaps to themselves about doubting her to justify their votes. I'll take one for the team. I believe Ms. Reed, and I'll vote for Mr. Biden this fall. What? What? Wow. Suck it up and make the utilitarian bargain. All major Democratic Party figures have indicated they're not budging on the presumptive nominee, and the transaction costs of replacing him would be suicidal. Barring some miracle, it's going to be Mr. Biden. So what is the greatest good or the greatest harm? Mr. Biden and the Democrats he may carry with him into government are likely to do more good for women and the nation than his competition, the worst president in the history of the republic. Compared with the good Mr. Biden can do, the cost of dismissing Tara Reid and worse, Weakening the voices of future survivors is worth it. And don't call me an amoral realist. Utilitarianism is not a moral abdication. It is a moral stance. Utilitarianism arose from the Industrial Revolution, a time of terrible economic inequality and abuse. It was intended to make a moral claim for the equality of all creatures who can feel pain and experience pleasure. Weigh it! Don't a few extra cents for each worker matter more than the marginal dollar for the boss? Weigh it. Won't the good for all the Americans who will benefit from replacing Donald Trump with Joe Biden, including the masses of women who will get some crumbs, count for more than the harm done to the victims of abuse? Utilitarian morality requires that I turn my face away from the people I propose to sell out. Monica Lewinsky, Tara Reid, this is agonizingly hard for me to do. Pretending not to believe the complainants, which is what is taking place with Ms. Reid, or that they're loose nobodies, which is what the media did to Ms. Lewinsky, it's an escape from the hard work of moral analysis. And it adds to the harm. My goodness gracious. It all boils down to killing kids. There is your ultimate utilitarian argument for this woman. That it is my body, my choice, my career, my child. I can kill it if I want to. You know, utilitarianism is, is a largely discredited philosophy uh, because of that. It, 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 it just treats people essentially as utensils. That's not where utilitarian comes from, mind you, but still. Uh, people are expendable in, in the quest for the greater good. And this woman's making the utilitarian argument that she believes Tara Reid, Joe Biden grabbed her by the you-know-where like Donald Trump bragged about doing, but women will get more. This is very much the argument that feminists made for Bill Clinton in the 1990s. 
it, it, it's funny to see it all come back after uh, three years of moral preening about evangelicals siding with Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Suddenly, the left is doing the same darn thing. They got to go with Joe Biden because he may be bad, but he's not as bad as Donald Trump. They got to go with Joe Biden because he may have done it, but Donald Trump's done it to more women. They got to go with Joe Biden because Ruth Bader Ginsburg needs a replacement. Striking, is it not? I, I mean, th- this is this is where we are. It, at least some some of them are being honest. I mean, we really this what is this woman's name again? Linda Hirschman. I mean, she deserves applause. Honestly, she deserves our respect for being open and honest. There are a number of women out there right now. Uh, Stacey Abrams, for example, who's just coming out saying, "No, nah, I don't believe it." New York Times looked into it. I don't believe it. Uh, that's not the Joe Biden I know. That, that That's not the, the person I know argument. It is the same argument that conservatives use for uh, what, what uh for Brett Kavanaugh and the left wouldn't buy it. I, uh, you ain't uh, just not know the real him, they would say. But they're perfectly willing to do it for Joe Biden. Man, hypocrisy knows no bounds now. And yet I suspect some of them are still going to lecture. You know, if nothing else, that, that's the good of this because I, I I can now use the Tara Reid situation, frankly, uh, when when they start lecturing Republicans on supporting uh, Donald Trump, when they start lecturing evangelicals on supporting Donald how can you support a man like this? Well, you're, you're supporting a man who actually did grab a woman there. Do you not believe all women anymore? Have you suddenly changed your stance? At least I know what I'm getting with with Donald Trump. You know, listen, I argued forcefully in 2016 uh, that if Donald Trump is calling himself a Christian, then uh, 1 Corinthians 5, it makes it very clear that Christians need to not have anything to do with him. But Trump's not actually calling himself a Christian. Others are putting words in his mouth. Donald Trump's a man who said he's never felt the need to repent for anything. Uh, that right there should tell you everything you need to know about his faith journey. And frankly, I, I have my bigger issue is with the people around Donald Trump and not Donald Trump on this particular issue. There are so many Christians who have engaged in a transactionalism in politics. I, I sometimes think the, the most subversive act that a Christian in America could do today is to not play politics. Or at least not to be an apologist for the president. Uh, and there are way too many Christians who are willing to be apologists for the president. I don't think we should. And I know I'm, I make friends of mine mad when I go down this road, and I'm going to go down it anyway. So I, I was. Just, uh, so I don't know Todd Wagner. Todd Wagner is the pastor at a church in Dallas, Texas, and I am a big fan of the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account. If you've never seen the Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account, uh, all he does is he puts up a lot of the famous now prosperity gospel ministers or people who lean that way. And all he does is he puts up what they're wearing, particularly the shoes that they're wearing, and then an image of the shoe with its price tag. I, honest to goodness, shoes are not my thing. I did not know that you could buy a $1,000 sneaker, running shoe, tennis shoe, whatever you want to call it. I I genuinely did not know that you could buy a $1,000 shoe. Like I mean, I knew you could buy a $1,000 dress shoe. I didn't know you could buy a $1,000 sneaker. I had no idea. And uh, there are a number of these pastors in the country 
who trying to connect with culture, they wear super expensive stuff. There, there was one preacher on there who was wearing a multi-thousand dollar t-shirt while he's preaching. And it, the, 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 the guy who runs the preachers and sneakers account, he's, he's very concerned with, he doesn't want people to be judgmental to the pastors who are doing this, but he does want people to ask questions. Uh, why would, when most people aren't even going to know that your shirt's 5,000, that your t-shirt is $5,000, why, why do you feel the need to wear it? What, what statement are you making by wearing that 5,000? Cause you're clearly trying to make a statement. Most of us, when we put clothes on, we're not trying to make a statement, but when you're one of the, these hip hop style, uh, prosperity gospel ministers, and you're wearing a thousand dollar running shoes and $5,000 t-shirts, you're, you're making a statement and you intend to make a statement. What statement are you making? And is it the right statement to make? It's a great account. And, and so he's he's uh, running, he was doing this podcast with Todd Wagner, who is a uh, preacher. I, I take it he's Baptist. Uh, he's in Dallas of a large church there. And it turns out that the Preachers and Sneakers guy goes there. And it, it was great, great. I, I highly recommend the podcast, uh, Preachers and Sneakers podcast. And I'm not a big podcast listener, but I've, I've just, I, I love this account. Started listening to the podcast. Great conversations. And, um, he was making a comment, Todd Wagner was, that uh, really one of the questions that people of faith have to ask is how transactional are you being with the world around you? Are you trying to glorify God or are you using God as a bank, as an ATM? And Costi Hinn was also in one of the podcasts. Costi Hinn, whose uh, uncle Benny Hinn is the famous prosperity gospel minister. Costi Hinn wrote a book rejecting all that, came to Christ, is now a great pastor. And he was talking about, uh, are we using Jesus as an ATM? Uh, and, and I would say the same thing in politics. Are we using the president as as a as an ATM? Are we using the president transactionally? And a lot of Christians who surround the president, a lot of his, his uh, pastoral council that surround him, I really think they're way more interested in what he gives them than they are in his soul. Uh, a lot of them seem perfectly willing for Donald Trump to burn in hell forever as long as they get some good public policy out of it. And I got real disappointment in those people as well. But there are a lot of evangelicals who support the president largely because they realize the Democrats are coming to get them. Joe Biden actually spoke to the human rights campaign yesterday. He wants to uh, implement the Equality Act. The Equality Act would criminalize Christian doctrine on homosexuality. The, the Equality Act would largely ban... Uh, that and would require uh, Orthodox churches to hire uh, people who deviate from their orthodoxy on sexual issues. And Joe Biden's all for it. I have a real hard time blaming Christians for voting in their self-interest. This woman is at least willing to admit she's voting for Joe Biden for the greater good of the feminist cause. The difference is that she's not going to abide by anyone lecturing her, and yet I suspect she and all the rest of them will continue to lecture uh, Christians for daring to, in their minds, be hypocritical for voting for someone who isn't actually leading the persecution charge against them, as opposed to one who's perfectly happy to hand the church in this country over to its persecutors. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, the phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to see the data from the Georgia Department of Public Health, uh, the Daily Count, their revised website, if you text the word data 
to 33777. I'll send you back the link right now. 31,193 cases in the state of Georgia, 5,795 people in the hospital, uh, 1,332 deaths. Uh, keep in mind the confirmed cases and the hospitalizations are cumulative. They're not current. That doesn't mean when I tell you there are 31,193 cases, doesn't mean that there currently are that many. That means overall, since this uh, pandemic began, that's how many cases there are in Georgia. Right now, today, there have been two reported new cases. Obviously, that number will go up. Yesterday was 44. The fifth was 132. The fourth was 306. The third, 138, the second, 189, and the first, 489. We're still trending in the right direction. Those numbers will still go up, um, but they go up every day uh, at a smaller and smaller rate. And, you know, the, a lot of the, the media right now is sensationalizing this, making it very partisan. Rachel Maddow did an entire monologue last night blasting Republican governors for reopening their states and ignoring all the Democratic governors who are doing the same thing. And a lot of Democratic governors are, by the way. It's not just Colorado. Uh, slowly but surely, states are beginning to reopen. 40 states are taking measures to begin reopening their states slowly and with precautions, some requiring people to wear face masks, some not. Um, and if you listen to MSNBC, you would think it was just Republican governors doing it. You would. I got to tell you guys, so I, I had to go to Atlanta yesterday. And I headed up there. And I was uh, traffic was was more than I was expecting, and apparently it's gotten heavier. It's still not it's still not very thick, but it's definitely a little heavier. Um, I, I had a meeting. I decided to get a haircut. Uh, did my show from my studio up there, uh, which I had to get permission to go in because they don't want me in the building. Um, so I, I get to be one of those essential essential people who's so essential they don't actually want to come to work uh, unless I get sick because. Uh, I, I got an evening show in addition to this show. If I got sick, I don't even know how I'd get a guest host. Um, we just have to play best ofs until I got better, I guess. Uh, but um, I was amazed by the lack of traffic. And in addition to the lack of traffic, I was amazed at just how bad the drivers are. I was somewhere north of Forsyth. It was before I got to Locust Grove. The number of people in the left lane who were driving slow, which was infuriating, they wouldn't even pass the person next to them. You really, it, it, there really should be no punishment for someone who blows up a car in front of them for driving slow in the left lane. You should really be able to annihilate the car in front of you, run them off the road. Uh, if they die or not, uh, no sympathy for the slow poke in the left lane who won't move out of the way for everyone to go past. I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I'm very law and order on that. It is against the law and, and you should be punished. And if it's, it's the person behind you is allowed to run you off the road. And, and if your car doesn't have airbags or you're not wearing your seatbelt, well, okay, I'm sorry, but you shouldn't have been in the left lane driving slow. This is increasingly my number one pet peeve. And sure enough, there's no one on the road yesterday. And there's some slow idiot from Florida in the left lane who won't get out of the way with 10 cars backed up behind him because he won't go around the car next to him that's in the in the middle lane who's actually driving the speed limit nope well can't 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 hit the pedal at all can't slow down and get behind the guy got to stay right oh just infuriating anyway but there was a guy in a lexus who was on a flip phone which i didn't even they made and he was weaving in and out of traffic and, and i had to slam on my brake because he nearly ran me over i was stunned by the number of people it's like everyone forgot how to drive while they were locked up why, hello there. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number if you want to be a part of the program.
877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. All right, we got to go start this hour with a phone call from Tony in Sandy Springs. Tony, welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. Um, I, I wanted to talk about this uh, Shelly um, Uthern, I guess her name is. She's the hairdresser in Texas. Yeah, but I will say, if I may, real quick, uh, the situation in Savannah—those those, guys—they they need to hang for what they did. But anyway, um, as far as down in Texas, uh, uh, yeah, in Texas, I, I think this is one of those situations, and I'm just, I'm just so angry about it. This is one of those situations where Benjamin Franklin once said, "If you trade security for a little bit of freedom, if you trade freedom for security, you deserve neither." And I think, and I, I respectfully uh, will have to disagree with you about all the quarantines and stuff, because this quarantine has made innocent, hardworking individuals into um, criminals, basically, putting them in jail for just exercising or, or trying to earn a living or whatever, all because of a virus. We didn't do it for other viruses. 33 million jobs are now gone. And now look what we have as a nation. Is this really a, a nation anymore? I mean, is it really worth even saving or worrying about anymore if we're going to be putting people in jail just because they want to work? I, I think you got a valid point on the overreaction of a lot of governments. I mean, take, for example, Gretchen Whitmer, the Michigan governor, who apparently says that uh, hoses, pool supplies, and seeds are not essential, and grocery stores will get in trouble if they sell them more. In California, you have the person jogging solo on the beach who is arrested by the police uh, for doing that, uh, the, the inability of local governments and state governments to discern. But um, I, I would I would disagree with you in, in this regard. For most viruses, no, we, we don't do this. Um, in the Spanish flu, states did. 50 million people still died worldwide from the Spanish flu. And uh, the precedents being used now are precedents that were established during the Spanish flu global pandemic. And... I, I just because you're the odds are you're not going to get the virus doesn't mean that hospitals wouldn't get overwhelmed. We've seen hospitals get overwhelmed. Uh, I, I, I think we have to discern here that uh, states have police power. And when there's a global pandemic like this, states can take action. Uh, and the question is, uh, how do they take action and will they be held accountable? And I think some of these people do need to be held accountable. Uh, and I'm very torn and I want to be very honest that I'm torn on Shelley Luther. Shelly Luther is a small business owner in Dallas who is on the verge of uh, bankruptcy. She owns a salon, Salon Alamode in Dallas County. And there's a shelter in place order from the governor of Texas, as well as from county and city officials, preventing hair salons from reopening. And she decided to reopen anyway. She was given a citation and a cease and desist order. And she persisted in continuing to open her business and wound up uh, putting her in jail. She said she won't close the business and she won't pay the citation. Let, let me explain why I'm torn on this because I, I'm I'm so sympathetic to this woman. And I think it is ridiculous at this point. 
and I think that she should be able at this point as Texas has flattened its curve to be able to do her business. But I also believe we got to respect the rule of law. And there are ways to challenge the rule of law. And one of the ways of challenging the rule of law should not be defiance of the rule of law unless the rule of law is just absolutely contrary to God's law, for example. And, and you know, God actually, in, in 2 Peter, for example, or 1 Peter, there's an entire dissertation by Peter on you got to respect the law. If you're a person of faith, you got to respect, unless the law conflicts with God's law and, and nothing here conflicts with God's law, unless you're going to be really twisty with God's law, like the devil was trying to tempt Jesus, there, there's nothing here that conflicts with God's law between the, the state law. I think it's wrong. I think it's an overreaction. I think it's bad. I, I think there's going to be an election and the people who did this need to be thrown out of office. And I think that there needs to be a pardon the governor in Texas is prohibited from pardoning directly. That's something that a lot of people are missing, um, that they you you have to have a pardon committee. There's a pardon board in Texas. The pardon board has to offer up a pardon. I think she needs to be pardoned. I think the system needs to work in that regard. But I also think that we have an obligation to respect the rule of law. And I think there are a lot of people on the right who don't appreciate the extent of the virus, the damage the virus can do. I think there are a lot of people on the right who are peddling in conspiracy theory, who are willfully trying to ignore the truth of the virus, uh, the truth of the death toll, the truth of the body count the truth of the extent of the pandemic, the truth of transmissibility. Uh, they're peddling these videos. I get them now all the time. You have the two doctors in California. You had the, the woman who's attacking Dr. Fauci. I get these conspiracy videos that we're supposed to question everything we hear on CNN, but by God, this video on YouTube from someone I don't understand, it's got to be the truth. It's gospel truth because I saw it on YouTube. It's more complex than a lot of people want to acknowledge. And if I were the governor of Texas, the governor of Texas said compliance with executive orders during the pandemic is important to ensure public safety. But he did not say he disagreed. Uh, he, he said it was an overreaction. The, the attorney general in Texas, I agree with Ken Paxton, that it's an overreaction. Uh, he wrote that it's a shameful abuse of judicial discretion, which seems like another political stunt in Dallas. But. I, I gotta say that um, you, you've got the you got this owner of this salon in Texas, and and the Texas authorities tell her you you got to close up shop. And she not only says she's not going to close up shop, but she's not even going to pay the fine. And then they said, if you'll just if you'll just close up your shop, we're not going to put you in jail. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so they put her in jail. She's she's not a she's not a martyr to any cause. I'm, I understand her need to make money. Do you know, I have been paying my barber for two months for haircuts and haven't been able to go get them. I have been paying extra money to the barber shop because there are multiple barbers who work in the barber shop who I'm not their customer. 
and yet I have been sending them money to make sure they could put food on their table. And I, I don't say that to brag about me. I say that to say, why doesn't this woman have customers who are willing to sustain her through this so that when she can open up, she's able to open up. I understand why she's doing it, but I also understand that we've got an obligation to follow the rule of law. You know, one of the the, the convicting things is um, this pastor in, in Dallas that I was listening to in this Preachers and Seekers podcast says if you're if you're changing what you believe to try to keep an audience, you're making an idol of your audience. You're worshiping your audience. And I know what I'm saying right now. My Most of you fundamentally disagree with me, and, and you're more than welcome to call in here. I, I don't mind people calling in and dis- disagreeing with me. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I have a show now where I don't have to stop every few minutes for traffic and I, and I have a longer time to talk because I'm deeply torn on this issue. I am deeply sympathetic to this hair salon, and, and but I'm also frustrated because, you know, I have paid out of my own pocket these last couple of months to make sure that when we were open back up, my barber would be there for me. And I went yesterday and I got a haircut and I tried to pay him for the haircut, even though I paid for two months, way more than what individual haircuts were worth. I've been paying to make sure that this place would be open, that they would be able to meet their rent and, and, and the barbers who work there would be able to put food on their table. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm, I'm saying to say, where the hell is this woman's customers? Why aren't they doing this for her? So that she's not put in this position to have to do this. Why is it all on her defying the law? Why aren't people coming forward to help? But when it comes to the rule of law, there are laws with which we must comply. They don't violate God's law. And so we have to, we got to honor the law. You got to honor the emperor. You got to honor the president. You got to honor your local governmental officials if you're a person of faith. And she's apparently a person of faith. So she's actually committing sin. It's not easy to say, and I know it makes all of you guys mad at me for not pounding my chest and saying, well, well, by God, she she should be able to do this, and we should break her out of jail, and, and on and on, and, and, and all, all the restrictions out there. I get what, what Ken Paxton, the attorney general, is saying. As a mother, Ms. Luther wanted to feed her children. As a small business owner, she wanted to help her employees feed their children. Needless to say, these are laudable goals that warrant the exercise of enforcement discretion. It's not an easy situation. And it frustrates me that people can't see that it's an easy situation because one side says it's so easy. She just needs to stay home. And the other side says it's so easy. Just let her go back to work. If you don't want to go there, you don't have to go there. And the reality is there's a global pandemic and a large portion of the people who get this virus don't know they're infected and they spread it to people who get really bad cases of it and ultimately they overwhelm hospitals. And we've seen the overwhelmed hospitals. Go talk to the doctors at Piedmont Healthcare in Atlanta. Talk to them about what they're seeing. I I have. Drive down to Phoebe Putney in Albany and talk to them. I notice so many of the people who are, are are proponents of herd immunity 
aren't out there trying to actually get the virus to to build up their own immunity. You go first. It's not an easy situation. And part of this is the media now tries to make everything so easy and tries to make everything so black and white. It's one thing on Fox. It's one thing on MSNBC. And a lot of these situations are complicated and tragic. And, and I just want to know where this woman's customers were so that she didn't get put in this position. Where, 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 where were the customers? Where was the government giving PPP to businesses? Where, where was the government in this? They failed. The government did fail her. Her customers failed her. But she's also failing her civic obligation as well. It's, it's just, it's, it's difficult. In, I got an email from, from a listener. Let me let me put this on the spot who's listening right now. Uh, it's called civil disobedience in the face of an unjust law. Was MLK committing a sin by violating the rule of law? No, because the law that Martin Luther King Jr. was resisting was a law that treated people differently based on the color of their skin. And the scripture is very clear that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female when it comes to God. And and the law should treat everyone equally, and the law did not. The law in Texas treats everyone equally. The law in Texas that, that this woman violated was treating all of these businesses equally. Every hair salon in Texas was treated this way. You can say it's an unjust law, but that's your, you know, I think it's an unjust law that I can't blow up the car in front of me that's going 45 in, in, a, in the left lane on the interstate. Why can't I do that? Well, but you, you're violating someone else's liberty when you do that, okay? Uh, you're, you're spreading the virus around when you open and you don't even know it. See, it's a complicated issue and you're trying to make it simpler. So I don't like this. It's unjust. It's like my kid doesn't like a 10 o'clock bedtime. Is it unjust? Your inability to nuance these positions is is what gets us all into trouble these days. It's a complex situation, uh, and, and ultimately, you know, as as someone who's been been doing what I can to make sure that other people don't have to do situations like that, I, I'm frankly frustrated with with this woman's customers. Why are they not loyal to her? That they want to come out and rally and cause a stink, but they don't actually want to take care of her. I think that's where I am. I I, I this woman should not be in jail. Let, let's bottom line. She shouldn't be in jail. There's a pandemic out there, and they want to throw her in jail. No, she shouldn't be in jail. If you're going to fine her, fine her. If you're going to board up her door so she can't get in and reopen her business, do that. But she has no business being in jail. I, I am there. It's it's stupid to put this woman in jail. But I also think it's ridiculous to, to say, you know what? I don't like this law, so I'm going to ignore it. There are plenty of laws I don't like, but I don't get to ignore them. Neither do you. Wow. I, <laughs> my mom texted me during break. I, I had missed this story. My goodness gracious. Uh, a, a woman in uh, Charleston County, uh, she was at Kiowa Island, got attacked by an alligator, was killed by an alligator. It turns out she had gone there to uh, do a home visit to do a woman's nails. The, the, the woman attacked and killed by an alligator in a gated community on Kiowa Island was visiting the homeowner to do her nails and was trying to touch the animal when it grabbed her. After briefly getting away from the alligator Friday, the woman stood in waist-deep water in the Kiowa Island pod and said, I guess I won't do this again. But the alligator grabbed her in its jaws again and took her under, according to a supplemental police report. What? 
Cynthia Covert, 58, died of drowning before the deputies were able to shoot and kill the alligator and use poles to get her out of the pond. Covert came to Kiowa Island, a gated community, to give the homeowner a manicure on Friday. The woman told deputies Covert typically was professional in her salon but was relaxed and excited at the home, talking about her boyfriend's visit from Tennessee and brought a glass of wine with her. Covert saw the alligator while working on the woman's porch. When Covert finished, she started taking pictures of the alligator. The woman and her husband started screaming for Covert to get away from the alligator because they saw it grab a deer a few days earlier. Covert said, I don't look like a deer and reached to touch the alligator when the animal attacked. The husband and neighbor grabbed a rope and threw it to Covert when she surfaced and stood in the pond. Covert grabbed the rope and said, I guess I won't do that again. And she was pulled under by the alligator. Deputies and firefighters looked for Covert for 10 minutes before her body surfaced. The alligator took her back under once. When the alligator surfaced again, a deputy shot the animal in the head with his 9mm handgun. Covert's leg was severely damaged. An autopsy determined she drowned. Third person killed by an alligator in South Carolina in the last four years. What the? I'm I'm, I'm baffled. I'm baffled. Let's go to the phones. Robin, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. Yes, I know you real quick, and I saw related to your, uh, your comments just a while ago. Uh, what if it, you are supposed to be homebound and they catch you back camera that you are out? Should you be fine for that occasion? And also, I want to ask a question as far as uh, uh, as far as the graduation is concerned. Do you think that it should be viral as far as uh, instead of having the folks come out and they can just put all those appreciate it very much first what to do with the graduates i i think the graduates um i i man i, I struggle with the graduates we, i've got a nephew who's graduating this year and they're not going to be able to do graduation uh in fact mercer uh, asked me to film a little little thing for the law school class and i don't know what to do about the graduates I, you know our school is is put off um graduation until the summer uh, and I think people, they're going to need to work to reschedule it. On the other, now, I don't think if people who are supposed to be homebound or out and about uh, find them, uh, if, if some states are going to do that, thankfully Georgia's not. Uh, if I were governor, I wouldn't. Uh, but if you're out and about and you're not supposed to be out and about and, and they say you're going to get fined, I, I guess you get fined. In Birmingham, uh, they're going to arrest you if you're out and about without a mask on because you're supposed to wear a mask. And by the way, there's precedent for this. Birmingham did this in 1918 uh, in the Spanish flu outbreak. Atlanta did it as well. Uh, it, there were signs out, wear a mask or go to jail. And they literally would round you up and take you to jail if you weren't wearing a mask. And it actually caused the Spanish flu to, to get into to jails in San Francisco and elsewhere because of it. Uh, a lot more people died. I, I don't understand why people have lost the ability to nuance this stuff these days. You know, the government is allowed to classify businesses as essential and non-essential. They are. There are entire chapters of, of law on this, and there are Supreme Court cases to back it up. And, and you may not like it, but there are plenty of laws I don't like. I, I think the, the phosphate ban in dishwashers is, is ridiculous. I think the ban on incandescent light bulbs is ridiculous. There are all sorts of laws I don't like, but it doesn't mean government can't do them. Just because you don't like a law doesn't mean it's unjust. That's what elections are for. Uh, elect someone who will change the law. That That's the bottom line here. And that's why I think the situation in Texas is, is complicated. And I'm super sympathetic to the woman, but I also think the rule of law has to be protected. And and we go down a slippery slope when we decide, well, I don't like that law, so I'm going to ignore that one because in my opinion, it's unjust. This is 
what a democracy is for people. And apparently we can't even be a democracy anymore because it's all about each of us as a democracy in and of our own selves. Use the election process. Uh, you know, at, at the risk of riling you guys up more against me and, and losing my audience, uh, let me just say that the argument that uh, a lot of people are using uh, to justify Shelley Luther reopening her business uh, because she needs to feed her family is the same argument that illegal immigration advocates justify use to justify illegal immigrants uh, across the border. They just want to take care of their family. Uh, it's the same argument. Well, she's a she's she's a citizen. Well, it's it's the same argument. You, you may not like it, but it's it's and that's why I think it's that's why I think the rule of law applies to the illegal alien who shouldn't come here and break our law to get here, and and also to to people who are here. Now, we'll, we'll move on from there because there there's a story you need to know about here in Georgia. It is not COVID nineteen related. There is a a, a deep corruption running within our Republican Party here in the state that we we need to deal with or the voters are going to deal with it. And it involves the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, and his continued efforts to undermine anti-corruption Republicans in the state legislature. Uh, Ralston is uh, holding a fundraiser for a woman named Marcy Sackerson. Now, if you're in the legislature, you cannot raise money right now because the legislature technically is still in session, even though adjourned, so you can't fundraise. So Marcy Sacrison is running against Philip Singleton. Philip Singleton won a special election. He's a combat veteran, Republican, won a special election, and he supports getting rid of the speaker for all the, the the bad things the speaker has done. He's come on record saying as much. And so the speaker is trying to fundraise for Marcy Sackerson at a time Philip Singleton isn't allowed to raise money. And they've managed to set the primary to be before the legislature concludes so Singleton can't raise money. Maybe the governor should come out for Singleton, given the, the, the crap the speaker did to the governor last week with that uh, rigged poll showing the governor is, is losing the state. Uh, Singleton is an anti-corruption Republican, and he's made no secret of the fact that he thinks the, the speaker engages in, in bad practices that are ethically dubious, among other things, including dragging out trials for uh, alleged criminals so that they never have to go to trial. He essentially monetized a law that the speaker could defer cases indefinitely, and you actually had people who, who were accused of crime saying they paid the speaker thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to ensure they would never have to go to court. Uh, to, to uh, never have to face their victims. One victim was a 12-year-old girl who was molested by a preacher staying in her home, and she's now in her 20s, has all sorts of difficulties uh, dealing with the trauma of it. And it's, it's gone on so long, the preacher never even got accused, never even got found guilty, pled to a lesser crime. He, it was, he pled to inappropriately touching her and was sent back to uh, his home state. And... I just am infuriated by the willingness of Republicans in our state to give the Speaker of the House a pass on things like this. And now he is using the um, inability of legislators to raise money because of the law to raise money for the opponents of Republicans he doesn't like. 
the speaker, to my knowledge thus far, is not doing any fundraisers for Republicans challenging Democratic members of the House. He's only raising money for a Republican who has pledged to support the speaker and keep him in power against an incumbent Republican state representative who says the speaker is corrupt and needs to go. Now, you could say that that's that's all fair in, in love and politics, totally fair. But we've got a we got a corruption issue with our Speaker of the House, indisputably so. It's going to become a campaign issue, and the Republicans in the House won't stand up to him. And you know, interestingly enough, I looked at the money that Sackerson is raising, Marcy Sackerson. This district, if you're wondering, it is it runs from Noonan to Peachtree City. And the money that Sackerson is raising, she's raised $50 from inside her district. And something like 90% of the money comes from entities that have direct ties to either her father, former Congressman Lynn Westmoreland, or to her consultant. Her consultant is also on the House Republican Caucus payroll running the House Republican Caucus. So the speaker has put in charge of the House Republican Caucus, Marcy Sackerson's uh, campaign uh, consultant, who and then is is running a fundraiser for her that will also benefit her. The whole thing reeks of corruption. And why are Republicans in this state turning a blind eye to it? Why are Republicans in this state not standing up to the speaker? Look at what the speaker did just the other day. The speaker released a poll that threw the governor, Kelly Leffler, and David Perdue, and President Trump under the bus. The poll, which uh, all the media reports left out, it was in part text message-based and part online polling-based, meaning it's not a credible poll. The speaker released this poll to show the governor's worst performance ever, got national headlines that Brian Kemp was so screwing up the state of Georgia, everyone was rejecting him. And you know who turns out smelling like a rose in the poll? The state legislature. Ironically, no one in the poll knows what the legislature is doing right now, but somehow they come out smelling like roses. They come out good. I mean, if, if I were the governor, I would be rallying Republicans to Philip Singleton right now. Philip Singleton's had the governor's back. I mean, as a way to stand up to the speaker on this issue with what the speaker has done, I think it would be fitting to to go down there and, and take up for Philip Singleton. You can't hold a fundraiser for the guy, but you can certainly go out there and, and let people know that that this guy needs to get reelected to stand up to corruption, that he he's a fighter. He's a veteran. He's a combat veteran who went to uh, the Middle East to keep us safe and comes home and stands up to corruption here in the United States. And we have the Republican Speaker of the House in Georgia out to get him as a result. That's sad to see. Now, the other thing we have here happening in the state of Georgia, let me get you the the headline uh, from the AJC. Uh, Abrams burnishes foreign policy chops in pursuit of VP nomination. No potential Democratic nominee for vice president has jockeyed more publicly for the position than Stacey Abrams. And now the former Georgia legislator is trying to shore up one of her biggest perceived weaknesses, foreign policy, as Joe Biden nears his decision. She published an article in a trade journal this month laying out her foreign policy vision. Her allies 
allies and aides are emphasizing her overseas work, and her most recent book to be released in June includes a sharp focus on the threat of authoritarianism around the globe. It's the latest phase of Abrams' extraordinarily candid effort to persuade Biden to select her for the number two spot, flipping the script of potential running mates who usually sidestep public talk of a promotion while working behind the scenes to do just that. Even as Abrams focuses on foreign affairs, the Georgia Democrats keeping one eye on a singularly domestic matter, another campaign against Brian Kemp, a rematch that's seen by her aides as a uh, allies as a near certainty in 2022 if Biden passes her over. Abrams is making her direct case to be vice president in all manner of outlets on daytime talk shows and late night TV, podcasts and magazines, national outlets and hyperlocal publications. She and her aides say she's following one of her hallmark principles, answering questions forthrightly. The problem, though, is that she's now largely denying that she's trying to campaign to be vice president. And there are plenty of people who are criticizing her for doing this. There are plenty of people out there right now on the Democratic side saying this this is too in your face. You know someone who's actually being considered? I mean, the Biden campaign in the New York Times, man, the quotes of the New York Times are pretty brutal. They are so over Stacey Abrams at this point. You know one of the people that they're looking at almost to spite Abrams? Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta. That's right. And I am told very reliably that one of the reasons they're looking at Keisha Lance Bottoms is to send a signal that they're over Abrams. And uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, unlike Stacey Abrams, has been loyal to Joe Biden. Remember, when Joe Biden first announced, he, he said that, that he may need to come out of the gate with a potential running mate, and Stacey Abrams is who he likes. I'm not interested in that job. And that's what Abrams did. She said she wasn't interested in the job when, when Biden tried to offer to her out of the gate. Threw him under the bus. And now suddenly she's hyper-interested in it. But the Biden campaign remembers. And... They're not interested in it. I, I got to say, and, and you know, I, I this is probably going to be my syndicated column is uh, Stacey Abrams as, as, as Shakespeare in Love. And, and it, it's such a good comparison in my mind. And, and no one's talked me out of it thus far. And I've brought it up with you guys that uh, Miramax doing the open campaigning for Shakespeare in Love to win Best Picture against Elizabeth and against Saving Private Ryan, uh, the 99 Oscars. And it was a huge outrage that it actually won because as much as it was a fine film and, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow won, won the Best Oscar, um, for her best, best actress, won, won the Oscar for best actress. Uh, it, it wasn't a film that held up over time, and and Saving Private Ryan to this day is considered one of the greatest World War II films ever made, and it left such a bad taste in the mouth of people in Hollywood. The open campaigning for Shakespeare and Love uh, that to this day, if you openly campaign for the Academy Award for Best Picture, the odds are you're not going to get it. And and Stacey Abrams has run afoul of the Shakespeare and Love rule. She's so openly campaigning, and the hilarious part is she's now that I'm, I'm not campaigning for vice president. She wants to talk about being open, honest, and candid, and yet now she, I'm, I'm not actually openly campaigning for vice president. I'm just getting out there as a, as a defender of the vice president. Yeah, whatever. We all know what you're doing. And it's not going to work, Stacey. It's not going to work. Uh, by the way, uh, one of the things that, that Stacey Abrams and other Democrats have been blasting the president for is the rumor that he was going to shut down the coronavirus task force. Turns out he's not going to. I thought we could wind it down sooner. 
I had no idea how popular the task force is until actually yesterday when I started talking about winding it down. I didn't know whether or not it was appreciated by the public, but it is appreciated by the public. It is. Here's Kaylee McEnany. He decided that Coronavirus Task Force is here to stay. They've done great work. Um, I've witnessed it. I'm in the Coronavirus Task Force meetings, and they've gotten our country through this. There were supposed to be 2.2 million deaths, um, and we're at a point where we're far lower than that, and it's thanks to the great work of the task force and to the leadership of President Trump. No, no, notice, the, notice the twist there. There were supposed to be 2.2 million deaths. See, the White House, un- unlike many of the the president's supporters, ironically, the White House is owning the models. The White House is owning the models. Look, they said we were going to have 2.2 million people dead just to the virus and an additional 2 million people dead because they wouldn't be able to get in the hospital for other stuff. And now we may have 100,000 deaths, which is still more than the president would like. But it, one, it shows the models are right. The, the model truthers out there are being proven wrong, I think, because the IHME model on the death toll, it, it turns out we're, we're now well within the range. People are ignoring that fact, but it's true. And you still got people out there saying the models were always wrong. Now, the models are actually proving to be pretty spot on with what things are doing right now. And the White House team is owning it and saying, listen, because of this coronavirus task force and because of the president's leadership, we're not going to get 2 million people dead. I've been saying for over a month now that that's the tack they need to take, and they're taking it now. And good for them for doing it. And it is starting to drive Democrats insane. The Democrats are losing their mind over this. They are furious with this. And it is going to be by by June, by June, you're going to have, I mean, you've already had Chris Hayes on MSNBC. You're going to have more Democrats coming out and saying, what if they misled us with the models all along? What if they misled us with the models so that we would never realize how, how it, it, we always would think it was going to be way worse than it actually is so that the president would look good. I mean, Chris Hayes on MSNBC actually tweeted that out a while back. We, we talked about it here. And you're going to have more of them say that. Well, what if the models were always overinflated the death toll so the president comes out smelling like roses? The, the very people who told you not to dispute the models are now going to come out and dispute the models because it doesn't serve their political interests. Very much like I, I continue to maintain some of the most prominent voices on the left demanding we all stay home, want us to stay home so the economy doesn't recover. We're going to have to deal with this issue, by the way. We, we really are going to have to deal with the issue of, the, of, of these people saying we got to keep the economy shut down forever. Uh, we can't keep the economy shut down forever. What they want to do is never let a crisis go to waste. They want to wreck the economy and say, hey, we got to have socialism now. You know that's out there. Now, look, I, I think it's a minority view, but I think it's a growing minority. I think just as these Democrats are willing to say, you know what? Who cares what Biden did to this woman? We got to beat Trump. Who cares what happens to the economy? We got to beat Trump. Uh, if you can do that with someone alleged of attacking a woman, you can do that with an economy. And I bet we're going to see it. It is me, Eric Erickson. The phone lines, well, we're almost at the end of the show, so they're closed. Let us see. What have I forgotten to talk about? Oh, the Supreme Court flush. I didn't get the audio of it, but so the Supreme Court is doing these these oral arguments by phone, and in the process, they, well, someone was on the call and flushed. In the middle of an attorney making an argument, someone flushed the toilet. 
<laughs> now, the, one of the other things is, is uh, so the way they're doing this is actually kind of interesting because uh, you can't go to the court right now. And, and poor Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been in the hospital. She just got out again, uh, and she is trying to hold on until the Biden presidency. Uh, God bless her. Uh, you, you know, I actually really do admire that. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely disagree with her. Her jurisprudence is horrible. Uh, man, does do she have a, she and Sotomayor just have ruthless hatred for people of faith uh, in their opinions. And she totally misrepresented uh, Obamacare yesterday at hearing. But you, you got to admire a woman that old uh, who goes, get, gets up and goes to work every day as best she can, is working from a hospital bed if she's got to. She's just got a tenacious work ethic. And, and you got to just admire work ethic and people like that. Uh, whether you agree with them or not, uh, I always admired that she and Anthony and Scalia, who so vehemently disagreed with each other, could still be friends. And she she's doing this. She's been in the hospital and she's just holding on for a Biden presidency. Uh, and, and one of the best gifts we could give to America is to make sure there isn't a Biden presidency, frankly, um, uh, and move the court further to the right. Uh, and but she's going to hang on and polling out there isn't great for the president, so maybe she'll get her way. I don't know. Hopefully the polling changes. But nonetheless, someone that they're having to do oral arguments by phone and someone flushed a toilet. While all of this is going on, Sonia Sotomayor cannot seem to figure out her mute button. The way they're doing is typically what happens is you get, I, I think it's what, a, a five-minute, five, ten-minute opening, and then you get 15, 20 minutes of questions. Maybe it's 15-minute opening and 15 minutes of questions, and, and you get to close. And uh, the they get two minutes to make an opening statement uninterrupted. The lawyers do now. Typically what happens is they start to make their opening statement, and, and the justices j- immediately go to questions. And so the 30 minutes is wiped out by their opening statement, uh, and uh, they, they don't actually – I said that wrong. They, they get like 30 minutes, and they typically spend a few minutes making it open, and the justice just jump in and start asking questions right away. So now what Chief Justice Roberts has done is he's telling the lawyers, you get two minutes to make a concise opening, and then each justice gets two minutes to ask questions – and then if there's time, uh, we'll go to follow up and 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 go through it that way. And it's become very orderly. But poor Sonia Sotomayor cannot figure out her mute button. And so you have this audio now every day during these oral arguments of the Chief Justice saying, Justice Sotomayor, just Justice Sotomayor. And then you say, sorry, Chief, the mute button. <laughs> And then during the oral arguments yesterday, someone wasn't on mute and flushed the toilet, and it, it has become a thing. It actually is kind of funny. Um, the way all of this is, um, the way all of this is playing out is, is something. You know, I, I forget who said it. Uh, man, I cannot remember who said it. But somebody said this great quote that you you can never get the right perspective on current times. You always have to look backwards. And I do think that the history books of this era, 100 years from now, well, after I'm dead, the history books on this era are going to be nuts. Uh, the stuff that historians cover, uh, the the how everything turns political. Everything is political now. What you think about the virus is political. Whether What you think about the shelter-in-place orders is political. What you think about where you eat is political. What you think about your food is political. What you watch on TV is political. Uh, where you live is political. Everything is political these days. It, it, it's the most annoying trend. As religion has declined, the thing that has filled its void is politics, and politics, as a result, has become religious. 
There are now rites and sacrifices and dogma and and sacraments and you name it. Um, everything has become political and, and it, politics has itself become a religion for way too many people. On the left and the right, by the way, very much so on the left is that they, they go out of church. Politics and protest now has become their religion. But, man, a lot of cultural Christians these days are have turned religion and politics into one thing as well, which is kind of just sad to see.